continuing with the uh, the prayer of Jesus, and it's going to shift uh, from his prayer for himself to his prayer for his people. Uh, here in verse six, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you have given them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave them, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours. I lost myself. Uh, And yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious Father, for as much as our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of Your Holy Word, grant to all of us that our hearts being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and apprehend your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I apparently must have a thing <clears throat> for um, dystopian films that have uh, teenaged girls as the lead strong her- uh, heroine figure. Because last night, after, uh, you know, I've watched The Hunger Games. The Hunger Games are pretty good. So I thought I would watch Divergent. We had had a, a free weekend of HBO, so I. I I t- put that on the DVR, so I watched that last night, intending only to watch half of it because it was late. And so when I came to bed at midnight, Amy said, why in the world are you coming to bed now? <laughs> I kind of like the movie, I guess. So for those of you who don't know what Divergent is about, it's about obviously a dystopian future where America has been tired of war amongst itself, so apparently there was some sort of civil war, and they divided into five factions, all of the people, and everyone was supposed to fit in these five factions based on your aptitudes. And so it was almost like Soviet Russia, where you would go and take a test and they would tell you what you were going to do with your life. You'd go and be examined, and they'd say, okay, you belong, or you should belong in this faction, and you should belong in this faction. In this particular case, the the author of the series uh, is a professing Christian, and so what's interesting to me is to think that uh, she chose the self-giving faction as to be initially the faction that led the entire country. 
servant leadership. Good thing. Problem was, of course, that not everyone was happy with the idea of servant leadership. But the the main character is uh, a, a girl who doesn't fit into one of the five categories, and all of the people who didn't fit like that because they had gifts that covered multiple categories were called divergence. Bad. <laughs> bad to be divergent. Bad to, to not be able to fit into the proper whole, you see, because they were viewed, therefore, as subversive. And so the divergents were not just ostracized, but if they were discovered, they were often killed because they were viewed as a threat to society. They were deemed this not so much from the self-giving leaders, but more from the, uh, the people who wanted to be the leaders, the uh, erudites or the scientists, the smart people who want to rule everything. So anyway, um, sort of that's almost borrowing from Plato's Republic, the philosopher king kind of thing going on there, um, which the author apparently thought was a bad thing. <laughs> and I would agree. Outsiders. Why do I bring this up? Because Jesus is praying for his people who are going to be outsiders, who are going to be viewed as uh, subversives, and in some instances are going to be persecuted and sometimes put to death. And so he's praying for them in light of what he knows is going to happen. In fact, in light of what he has told them is going to happen if we remember uh, chapter 16. And so Jesus prays for his outsider people that they are protected and united. Yes, that's a little different than what you might have in your outline. I changed it. Jesus prays his outsider people are protected and united. Let's start with this. Uh, this is really hard to have one big idea that kind of draws them all together, all these three points. And so, but we see here that Jesus reveals God's character to his disciples. In a sense, this is what makes them outsiders. Okay? Jesus turns his attention, as I said before, uh, from his and the Father's glory to the disciples' needs in light of their present and future situation. He declares what has happened in the past. He says, I have manifested your name. And this is a common theme that we see in John's Gospel, although it is now put in slightly different vocabulary. He has been manifesting the Father's name through the whole Gospel in a variety of ways, and He's just summing that up, and He's explicitly saying this in terms of your name. Name is one of the themes that runs through this section of this prayer. It Name is repeated three times, as we shall see. In other words, the, fa- the Son is revealing who the Father is. He reveals the Father's character. He reveals the Father's power. He reveals the Father's authority. He does this in His teaching as well as doing this in His miracles or signs. He reveals them, He says, He manifested them, He says, to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. It's interesting that He says that. Because, I mean, He was doing this publicly, so it wasn't like he was doing this in a hidden sort of scenario, but the idea is that these are the ones who received it, who who got it, who for whom the light bulb went on, even though the light was shining for so many people. 
We are outsiders, so to speak, because these are the people that the Father gave to the Son out of or from the world and therefore are no longer part of the world. They're outsiders. They're different. And he's specific here. That it's not accidental, it's not arbitrary, but this is because of the will of the Father that He gave the Son a particular people. And it sounds like, you know, Steve's hammering on that one again. Well, that's because Jesus hammers on that one again. We need to be humbled sometimes. Because it's very easy to think that our salvation is rooted in um, the choice we made. The decision we made. When behind that choice, there lies God's choice uh, before the creation of the world, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. And so this emboldened Paul in many ways. For instance, in Acts 18, when he's ready to uh, go to Corinth and he's experiencing some opposition, God says to him, I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. And then he says the reason for I have many in this city who are My people. There were many that the Father had given to the Son that lived in Corinth who had not yet heard the Gospel and Paul is being sent to give them the good news so that they then will believe and be joined to Jesus. And I was reading... Um, John Piper's Supremacy of God in Prayer, I think. can't remember the... Oh, Let the Nations Be Glad, that one. <clears throat> he talks about the, the comments of someone uh, who was a, a missionary, and early in their missionary experience, they did not embrace the, what we call the five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace, and uh, they thought, how in the world would anyone ever go into the mission field if they believed those things? And then here they were, years later at, at Urbana, saying, now there's no way in the world I'd go out into the world if I didn't believe these things, because now I know that God is going to bring people to faith. My efforts are not in vain that God is going to use them specifically for the people He has set apart. I cannot fail, because God will not fail. And so we see Calvin commenting on this passage by saying, Christ declares that the elect always belonged to God. We see that they, uh, they're the people that were given to Him by creation and election. All of Jesus' disciples, both past and present, belonged to the Father. And the Father then gifted them to the Son. Let's understand for a moment why this is important. Let's think of, Christopher's not here, but let's think of Christopher. Okay, we'll pick on him. His wife has left the room. It's all right. Maybe she'll tell him later. Maybe his father-in-law will tell him. But his daughter is giggling. Okay? It would be nice for me, I think. I mean, I'd feel good if I could go down to a dealership, okay, and just take a car off the lot and say, Christopher, you don't have to worry about biking to work, and especially if it gets cold or too hot or rainy or anything like that. No monsoons for you. Don't worry, young man. Here's a car. 
there's a problem. Unless I have an accompanying uh, fifteen to thirty thousand dollars to pay for said car, I don't have the right to take a car off the dealer's lot and give it to my friend. It doesn't belong to me. I could say, "Here's my car," but then, um, what am I going to drive to work? Okay, how am I going to get to the airport and pick up Sharon's parents? <laughs> okay. The father has a right to give these people to Jesus because they belong to Him by creation and He has claimed them for Himself in a special way in election. And He gives them to His Son. Remember we talked about that eternal covenant, the, the, the promise that Jesus prayed would come to pass last week. He gives them to the Son, in a sense, as a gift or reward for His faithfulness in keeping His end of that eternal covenant. This is why D.A. Carson notes that we, people like you and me, we do nothing to earn God's gift of Jesus. Jesus paid everything to receive God's gift of us. Because it was by covenant. Jesus doesn't just get them. He gets them by laying His life down for the sheep. For giving Himself up for the church. So He receives these when He fulfills His end of the covenant. And the Father then fulfills his end of the covenant. But here we, we come across these words, the ones I stumbled over when I was reading the text because I lost my place, not because of anything else. All mine are yours and yours are mine. He's not talking about socialism. No, no Bernie Sanders fans get all excited here right now. Okay, That's not what this is about. This is about the union of the Father and the Son. And their union is such that they share all things. They have in common all things. They have in common the people of God. They have in common, we see the words of God. We'll see that in a few moments. And they have in common the name of God because the Father has given His name to His Son. Not in the sense of, I named my children, but in a different sense. Okay? He's given His power and authority to His Son. And so we see, as we think about in, in light of this, and as we kind of, we'll, we'll kind of unpack this again a little bit later, but the Father gave Jesus words to share with the people that His Father gave Him. And so when Jesus manifests His name, it is in the words that the Father gave Him and He speaks them to the people that the Father gave Him. The Father's given a lot in all of this. And the, and the Son is transferring a lot in all of this. But not only that, we see that the Father gave Jesus His name so that He could manifest that name or the Father to the people again that he was given. And so Jesus' disciples are different because God chose them and chose to reveal himself to us in the Son. That is why we are different. 
That is why the world doesn't like us. Let's look at the second part of this. Is that Jesus is glorified by disciples keeping God's Word. Jesus notes that they have kept your Word speaking about His disciples while He is speaking to the Father. And so we see Calvin kind of comes into this and, and speaks to this again and noting that the Word of God flows out to the reprobate or the unbeliever, but it takes root in the elect and hence they are said to keep it. So their keeping of the Word is in part a result of their having been given by the Father to the Son. Okay? And we've seen this idea of keeping before. If you love me, you will keep my word. Okay? We've seen this before in, in other contexts here in John's Gospel. Um, it, there it was a sign of genuine discipleship. <clears throat> the context here, I think, is slightly different, and we'll, we'll get to that in a, in a bit. But again, why do they keep them? As I mentioned, they keep it because they are yours and you gave them to me. They keep it because of the doctrine of election. That God ordains not just who shall be saved, but that they are saved in Christ, and that they are saved by faith in Christ. And so, He works in such a way that they believe and are in Christ. So, they keep it because of the doctrine of election and its implications. We see here that Jesus again gave them the words that the Father gave to Jesus. And so what's interesting here is that it, you know they keep my word. I have given them the words that you gave me. And Jesus uses two different words there. <laughs> Sorry. One is logos, and the other one is rima. The, the singular is logos in this instance. And when he talks about the plural words, it's that Greek word rima that is there. And I think the, the best way to understand the distinction that goes on here is message versus individual words. Okay, So when it talks about they have believed, uh, sorry, they keep my word, it's talking about they keep my message. And then, when he talks about the words you have given me, it's the particular words that Jesus spoke his message only in the words that the Father gave him. Particular words. We see something like this in 2 Chronicles 34, but in a negative way. Because it says, <clears throat> Our fathers have not kept the word of of the Lord, okay, the message of the Lord, to do according to all that is written in this book. And later it says, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant. Okay, this takes place when Josiah, well, not Josiah found it, but during Josiah's reign as king of Judah, uh, he led a bit of a revival. He got rid of a lot of the high places. And then in the process of this, some one of the priests who's uh, cleaning up the temple from all of the pollution of the bad king that was ahead of him discovered the book of the law. 
And so they publicly read the book of the law because they hadn't heard it in generations. So this is almost like the time of Ezra, okay, in the book of Nehemiah. But we see this distinction. There's the word of the Lord, the, the, the basic message given in particular words. We see this as well, in, in a sense, I think, in the New Testament. This idea of the message. Romans 10, But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The message of Christ. The gospel. And so what I believe Jesus is referring to here is not obedience like keeping the Ten Commandments. What is getting at here is they have kept and observed the message of the Gospel. That's what I think he's getting at in this particular context, particularly based on what he then goes on to say. Jesus points us to three aspects of what it means to keep this Word. That they have received them. The disciples received the particular words of Jesus as coming from the Father. Jesus' disciples today are the same way. Okay? That they also receive His words, accepting them as if they are from God because they are from God. So when we hear the Word read, when we go and read the Word ourselves, how do we hear them? Do we hear them as the, the words of men? The opinions of men? Or do we, like the Thessalonians, hear them as the Word of God that is to be believed and understood? He also says, that they know in truth that I came from you. They received or kept the word because Jesus came from the Father. They knew this. They understood this. He continues and says, they believe that you sent me. And so here's the idea, not just that Jesus came, but the idea that Jesus was sent. He was authorized to come and to speak on the Father's behalf. He's not speaking out of turn and speaking for someone else. He's supposed to speak for the Father. He is an ambassador. And so he, he's in, they entrust themselves to Jesus as one who has been sent by the Father to speak in His name. So as I said, the context here, I believe, is the reception of the message of salvation. It is not about strict obedience. But what we see here, when we think of it in that way, is that the Reformation is true. <laughs> Sola fide. It's about receiving these words by faith. Salvation is experienced by faith alone that receives the grace of God alone in Christ Jesus, the Savior alone, to the glory of God alone. And Jesus kind of ties this together. Because they have kept My Word, it's, He says, I am glorified in them. 
He's glorified in them because they've been given to Him, but He's also glorified because they believe God's Word. They keep the message. They believe it's true. They've responded in faith to the message of the Gospel. And so, we continue to glorify Jesus as we receive His Word and we believe that the Father has sent Him to save sinners. All right. You ready for the third part? The Father gets glory by keeping Jesus' disciples. I feel like I've been going fast. I feel like uh, when, when I was in Gospels with Dr. Mawinney, we often said it was like trying to drink from a fire hydrant. Okay, because he just kept going, man. <laughs> you try to ask him questions to slow it down so you could write. You'd often have writer's cramp uh, in Dr. Mowinney's class because he just kept going, going, going. Um, and so I, I almost feel like I'm going, going, going. I hope I'm not going too fast. Okay. If I am going too fast, when Matt finally gets it online, go listen to it again. <laughs> Maybe you'll catch more. The Father gets glory by keeping Jesus' disciples. And so finally, we get to Jesus' request for His disciples. He's talked about His disciples. He's talked about who are His disciples and why they're His disciples. Now He talks about His request. Here He prays for the disciples, and He specifically says in this context, and not for the world. Now we recognize that they came out of the world, And we will recognize later on in this prayer that He will pray for those who will believe this message and also come out of the world. But let's remember how John is thinking about the world. That though the Father loves it, it is a system of rebellion against Him. It is The world is viewed in terms of its sin and sinfulness. Okay? And so he's, Jesus is praying for his people who have come out of the world. Okay? In terms of what he's praying about. So, Holy Father. You know, that's the only time I th- believe in the Gospels that he puts Holy and Father together. Kind of odd. <laughs> And perhaps it's because, on the one hand, he didn't really need to teach them about the holiness of God. They probably understood the holiness of God, and so he didn't talk much about that. What they needed to grasp was the fatherliness of God. The kindness and compassion of God. But as we think of God as Father, let us not think of Him as an ordinary Father. But we ought to think of Him as a holy Father. He does not share in my imperfections as a Father. He's perfect in His wisdom as He plans for His children, as He disciplines His children, as He encourages His children, as He cuddles and coddles His children at times. He's a very different Father than the Father you had. He is, therefore, a holy Father. He is set apart, who shares all of the 
Actually, all your father, all the good stuff he got from God, but he also, the father does not have any of the bad stuff that your father had. So, Holy Father, he prays, keep them in your name. What's going on? Well, first off, I want us to think number six. The ironic blessing. The blessing that the priest was to place upon the people, part of which said, the Lord bless you and keep you. And so there's a sense in which Jesus, as our great high priest, is praying to the Father. He's not, he's not pronouncing the benediction, but he's praying to the Father that that benediction would be true for his people. Keep that word of blessing. Keep that word uh, of benediction upon your people because of what I have done. Keep this on them. But it's ironic in a sense because the disciples keep His Word, and now Jesus prays that He would keep them. The same word is used. Different uh, sort of nuance of that word. Because here, it has that idea of observe them, watch over them, guard them. And so in a sense, we are to think of the, the guard house with the security guard in there. And that could bring all kinds of things to our minds. If you're Canadian, you might think of the, the Birmingham, uh, Buckingham Palace with the guards with the big ha black hats and the red suits. You know, those guys. They're guards. They're making sure that no one comes in unless they belong there. Okay. And so part of the Father keeping us is making sure that we are protected from outside forces. If you, uh, if, if you ever watch American Sniper, there's this one time at the beginning of the movie where, he's, where the father is talking to the main character when he's a child. And he says, son, there's three kinds of people in this world. There's the sheep. There's the wolves. And there's the sheepdogs. The job of the sheepdog is to protect the sheep from the wolves. And the father protects the, protects the sheep from the wolves. And he uses human beings to do that. That's part of what elders are supposed to do. But ultimately, Jesus is saying, Father, accomplish this. Protect them from the forces outside, from the world which seeks to destroy them. But he also needs to protect from what's within because while we're saved, we still remain sinners. Luther's uh, famous formulation, at the same time just because of justification and sinners. And so there's going to be dangers within the church, which Paul alludes to in that passage we read from Galatians 5. There's going to, there is a ever-present temptation to bite and devour one another because of our sinful passions, because of our idols. Uh, that 
is at work. And so the Father also works to protect us, to keep us in that way. We see that Jesus reminds him as he prays that during his earthly ministry, Jesus kept them in the Father's name that was given to him. And so Jesus had been doing this work in his earthly ministry, and he's saying, now I'm leaving this world, so Father, you take over for me in this regard. And so we think of that idea of keep them in your name. And so the name thing comes up again. That's why we read Psalm 54. Verse 1, O God, save me by Your name and vindicate me by Your might. And so as we think of God saving us in His name, we need to, I think, think along the lines of Psalm 54.1 where uh, you know, save and vindicate are parallel to one another in, in the Hebrew poetry, and therefore name and might are parallel to one another, meaning that, that might explains name. He wants the powerful God to, to save and vindicate Him from His enemies. And so here Jesus, I believe, is praying for the Father on the basis of His powerful name to preserve His people. To keep them within the number of the redeemed, the saved, by His great power. Which brings us to another one of those points of the doctrines of grace. The preservation and perseverance of the saints. Jesus is praying for our preservation at the hand of the Father. And I think that what this ought to uh, remind us of, uh, prove to us, is that we cannot keep ourselves. He's praying for the Father to keep us because we can't keep ourselves. We are sinners poor and needy, not powerful and righteous in and of ourselves. We need His help. Not just a little, but a lot. One of the ways in which I need His help is I need His help remembering things because I forgot to bring my copy of Calvin's Institutes, wherein there is a perfect quote, which I will put online later on, about this, wherein he says that, that we trust Him not until we are aware of how weak and powerless we are. And that means that God graciously exposes our weakness and our powerlessness so that we will entrust our care to Him instead of foolishly thinking we can take care of it ourselves. In Divergent, Kate Winslet plays the, uh, the one who would be king. She's the leader of the erudite class, the smart people. And in a number of dialogues that she has, she talks about basically having to save humanity from human nature. 
She thinks that she has the plan to save them from themselves, you know, because it's human nature that has brought all of these wars. And she's right. But I wanted to put words into the heroine's mouth that said, it's also human nature that is, that is the, the reason why we love anybody. And so while we remember the, uh, the ruin part of us as sinners, which brings about bad things, we should also remember the fact that we're made in the image of God, and so therefore anything redemptive, redeeming within us is a result of God's image within us. And that even the unbeliever's capacity to love someone else is a remnant of that image. But back to my point. She was trying to save humanity by humanity. Humanity cannot save itself. Any attempt at utopia becomes dystopia. Precisely because of the fallenness of the person in charge. It's funny because she was saying that the serving class, the leadership class, was no longer qualified to lead because of their crimes. But she was about to commit a crime of rebellion herself. And this is what we do. That's humanity right there for you. Okay? So, to be kept... I think includes the idea that Jesus mentions here that they may be one even as we are one. And so there's a question here. Is Jesus talking about union or is He talking about unity with regard to organizational unity? The ecumenical movement as well as the Roman Catholic Church and I would say the Eastern Orthodox Church Orthodox Church, um, use this passage to push for organizational unity. Meaning everyone has the same name at the end of their church name. It may be Church of the Resurrection, but it's Roman Catholic Church or Eastern Orthodox Church. Some sort of uh, outward unity. That's what they use this verse for. And I think that's a wrong use of this verse. Because I think Jesus' prayer is already answered. And it's not about organizational unity. Because He talks about as you and I. The Father and the Son don't have organizational unity. They have union. And so I believe that Paul is assuming this oneness as union when he writes constantly about the imagery of the body. There is one body of Christ. There may be differences within denominations, but they're still part of one body of Christ. There is one faith that we hold, and as long as we hold to that same faith, and I'm talking big picture faith, the important things, the essential things like you know Trinity, substitutionary atonement, that kind of stuff, we're all in the body of Christ. In other words, on the big picture, on the message, we are on the same page. I had lunch with someone uh, this past week who's not a member of this church, but uh, a friend of mine in another church, and we were talking about marriage. 
And, uh, you know, basically the idea of being on the same page came up. And, and I said, you know, the good thing is, is that you and your wife, when it comes to the important things, are on the same page. You believe the same big picture important things. And now it's just a question of, of trying to get on the same page as it comes to some less important things. You're already united, but now you're working to try and work in unison to work together for some of the same goals. And I think that's part of what's going on, you know. Uh, reflecting the unity of the Trinity is what we're supposed to be doing. Union and united in purpose and will and love, etc. And so, we are intended to live in light of our union with Christ, which means that we're also united to one another. Because we're united to Jesus. Okay? So there's, there's the, the warning from Paul, don't devour, but there, there's also an encouragement, I think, in there. In other words, think of it this way. <clears throat> think of our Baptist brothers down the road. We're on the same page. Or even our Baptist brothers in the room. Okay? <laughs> We're on the same page in the big stuff, right? Baptism is not one of the big stuff things. We can disagree on the issue of baptism and the question of who should be baptized. Okay? Um, we're together. We can try to encourage each other to maybe see the other point of view. To, to maybe change views, but we don't treat them as though they're apostate. We don't think, well, you don't believe in infant baptism, you're going to hell. We don't think that. And we shouldn't speak like that to them, as though we think it's that important. And, and similarly, they shouldn't speak that way to us. And there's a number of issues that, that takes place. Most of the, you know, doctrine of the last things, the end of days, there's only, there's a couple of views like full preterism that are out there. Those are heretical. But most of the others, while they may not be beneficial, they're still within that big circle of orthodoxy. Okay? So, we don't bite and devour one another over the secondary issues. We, we try to love each other to come to a better understanding of the Scripture in these secondary issues. But we are to love one another. Jesus talks about, as I mentioned, He said He kept them during His earthly ministry. And then Jesus qualifies this to a degree. And He says that there was one who was lost. But he was never found to begin with, so to speak. It was Judas. And Judas's betrayal, his, his being lost, so to speak, was not a mistake. It wasn't like Jesus chose the wrong guy to be a disciple. And it wasn't as though a matter of weakness that Jesus was unable to keep him uh, due to the greatness of Judas's sin. But we see here that it was in a, to fulfill the Scriptures. And so Judas is alluded to here, and he hasn't even done this yet, 
Okay, that's probably why Jesus uses this uh, this phrase to describe him instead of saying that Judas guy. Okay, Judas is named here as the son of destruction. It's an interesting sort of phrase. It's similar to what we find in Isaiah 57 when uh, he says, Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? So someone who would be characterized by destruction. We see the exact same uh, phrase used in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, who is further described as the son of destruction. And I think it's a double entendre. Because Judas is going to bring the destruction of Jesus. And for that, Judas himself will experience destruction. He's born of perdition. And this will fulfill the Scriptures. So we are outsiders. We are divergent, so to speak, as far as the world is concerned. They, they in many ways don't know what to do with us because they don't understand what it means to be given to Jesus by the Father. They have not received the message of Jesus. And just as in the movie Divergent, this fear and this lack of understanding can turn deadly. They're afraid of us. Don't you understand that? Because they're afraid of God, they're afraid of us. That's why they want, some of them want to destroy the church. Anyway. But we see that Jesus prays for the Holy Father to protect His people by His great power and to keep His people united even though we have some differences on minor things. And so, while the church isn't part of the world, it still exists in the world to manifest the name of God to the world. And we're going to talk more about that in the next couple of weeks. So, we need to pray. Father, we thank You that Jesus is our great High Priest, that He is able to sympathize with us He has lived in the world. He knows the danger of living here. He knows uh, what it means to have his life threatened on a regular basis. Uh, He knows what that is. He knows what it is to be slandered. He knows what it is to be called crazy. He knows what it is to be betrayed. And so I thank you that he kept by his power that you had given him the disciples and that He continues and you continue to keep all your disciples all around the world. Help us to rest in that even as we see tribulation and persecution both near and far. That we remember that the prayers of Jesus are not futile. but that those that have been given to Him by You will continue to keep Your Word. They will continue to cling to Your message. And they will be preserved even to the end. Even though it costs them their lives.
Help us to, to really get that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.